Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we're revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Quiet King, quiet the Prince of Peace. That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. This is The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people, who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. Former Associated Press reporter Katherine Johnson covered Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. She was one of the more prominent female reporters covering the movement. In this 2008 interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Johnson recalls the moment she became close with the Kings. It had started back when uh, there was a strike at Scripto, and I was set to cover it. And it was a very cold winter night, and Scripto is a pen manufacturing uh, close to downtown Atlanta. And um, while I was there, uh, I, was, I looked around, and there were a few. There was one TV group, but I was the only reporter there, and I followed around and. About 11 o'clock, King said, it's time to quit. So everybody left, and he told me, uh, this is a bad neighborhood, a dangerous neighborhood, so let me walk you to your car. And he did. And when we got there, I, it was just a few blocks away, I offered to take him to his home, because at that time he lived on Johnson Avenue. And um, I drove him home, it was about 11.15 then, or 30, and uh, Coretta met us, and she invited me in for coffee. And when I went in, I went and phoned my story in on Scripto, and, and uh, on the march, strike, striking marches. And then we sat around the table, and that's the first time I ever heard King just explode into brilliance. It was fascinating to listen to. And, it, and he, um, 
talked about his his uh, nonviolent movement and so forth. And um, I remember thinking then that that um, you couldn't hear Dr. King without uh, feeling an emotional reaction, um, and he really got to you, made you think of things you never thought about before. Anyway, we were there for a good while, and when I left, I thought then that <clears throat> uh, the black movement had found a voice in this very passionate young man from Atlanta. From that moment on, Johnson developed a bond with the King family unlike any other reporter. She was the only reporter allowed in the family's home from the moment reports surfaced that King was shot till the day of the funeral. Former AJC reporter Jim Mooney conducted the interview with Johnson in 2008. Katherine Johnson was an AP reporter in Atlanta in the early 60s, and she was one of the first women who covered a lot of the civil rights stuff, frankly, because a lot of the, a lot of the white Southern men in, in, the, in the AP bureaus in the South, some of them, of course, understood there was a story, but, but some of them were, didn't, weren't real eager to cover some of these things, and so Catherine got opportunities that she probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise to go and cover things like the desegregation at the University of Georgia, uh, and and and, and the, the desegregation at the University of Alabama when when Wallace stood there in the schoolhouse door and said segregation now and all that stuff. And so over the coming years, uh, she maintained a relationship with King and Coretta and covering them sometimes, but also with Coretta just sort of being her friend. And and you can imagine how much somebody like Coretta, with all the stuff her husband was going through and all the stuff she was involved in, needed a friend, you know, needed yeah. to talk to people. And so it's kind of interesting that a reporter was able to forge this kind of relationship. Well, I'm Katherine Johnson, and I worked for the Associated Press for um, many years. And I was, uh, <clears throat> during the 60s in particular, I started out in 59 on the news side. And I covered uh, King, the Civil Rights Movement, I suppose more than any woman in the country um, because I never saw a woman in most of the <clears throat> demonstrations and so forth that we covered. Um, and I got the movement because I was young and green and cheap labor. <laughs> and the men, they were traditional Southern men with Southern views and they didn't want it. And um, so that's why I got it. But then when King became famous, they did want it, but I had it sold up by then. And I was... I was the only woman and a only person, a reporter that is, in the King household from the time he was shot till he was buried. Why was that? I mean, you, you had a, you already had a, a, a friendly relationship with the King family, correct? Yes. Well, it had started back when uh, there was a strike at Scripto, and I was sent to cover it. And it was a very cold winter night, and Scripto was a pen manufacturing uh, close to downtown Atlanta. And um, while I was there, uh, I, was, I looked around and there were a few, there was one TV group, but I was the only reporter there and I followed around and about 11 o'clock, King said, it's time to quit. So everybody left and he told me, uh, this is a bad neighborhood, a dangerous neighborhood, so let me walk you to your car. And he did. And when we got there, I, I was just a few blocks away, I offered to take him to his home because at that time he lived on Johnson Avenue. And um, I drove him home, it was about 11.15 then, or 30, and uh, Coretta met us, and she invited me in for coffee. And when I went in, I went and phoned my story in on Scripto and, and uh, on the march, strike, striking marches. And then we sat around the table, and that's the first time I ever heard King 
just explode into brilliance. It was fascinating to listen to, and it, and he um, talked about his his uh, nonviolent movement and so forth. And um, I remember thinking then that that um, you couldn't hear Dr. King without uh, feeling an emotional reaction, um, and he really got to you, made you think of things you never thought about before. Anyway, we were there for a good while, and, and when I left, I thought then that <clears throat> uh, the black movement had found a voice in this very passionate young man from Atlanta. And from then on, I was occasionally invited for dinner, usually when when he wasn't there, but Credit wanted to talk and so forth, and wasn't writing much about her then because she really didn't sort of come in, to, but she in, enjoyed me, I guess, and um, I got to know her, and she, when she called for something, I would usually respond. You know, for example, she called me and said that <clears throat> I was an opera buff, and she knew it, and she wanted to go to um, I've forgotten the name of the opera, but uh, Leontine Price, who was the first black uh, diva to sing in Atlanta, and uh, in fact, the Metropolitan Opera had never had a, a black woman singing in Atlanta before. And that was at the Fox Theater, and that was one of the early theaters that was integrated. And so I gave them my tickets. I called the opera, and they said they had none. And uh, so I told them who, who the couple was that wanted them, because King was going to be in town that week. And they said, um, sorry, you know. So I gave them my two tickets. And um, they called the next day, she did, and said that the, that the <clears throat> Leontine Price had invited them backstage and they had really enjoyed it, so forth. So it was that kind of an association, you know, um, and, and so th that's how I really got in the house. And, uh, the, the night King was assassinated, mm -hmm. and I know you were out on a date. Right. And, and y'all heard about it on the radio, I believe. Yeah, we were here. And you, I'm going to take you to the house. Mm -hmm. uh, and y'all went, and you drove straight over to Sunset, where he right. was living in Vine City, right. near the AU Center. And there were already a good many people there. Yeah. Uh, tell me, tell me, pick it up from there. Tell me what happened when you uh, went to the door. Yeah, well, it was pouring down rain for one thing, and I dashed into the rain to the porch. And, uh, and I remember several reporters were there, including uh, a New York Times guy. And the, there was an officer on the porch, a policeman, and he said, no reporters allowed in. And by that time, the door opened, and down the long hall, I could see Coretta, and she was in a pink, rose pink, gown and robe, and uh, she, she spotted me at the outside, and she told the officer, let Catherine in, and he did. And so that's how I got in the King household, and um, I mean, I was there for five days, the only reporter in, except an SCLC man at one, a time or two, but they never wrote anything you know, that we, uh, that I saw and so forth. And um, she invited me, uh, she gestured to me along with um, Yoki to go to her bedroom. She didn't feel like seeing people, and um, she she craved violence. Uh, she craved privacy, and it was um, interesting. She'd had a surgery about six weeks earlier, and so she climbed in bed and rested against the pillows. And I sat in a chair nearby, and Yoki uh, was lying on the floor. She had on uh, pink pajamas and pink curls in her hair. And it's twelve year old, and we were watching King on television, and it was uh, it was fascinating because that was the speech he made the night before in Memphis, and here was the night he was shot, and I you know felt eerie to be in the um, in the house where he 
where he was, um, and, and his wife and his child, and it, it, he said, the only time I saw her weep some is when he said, um, I am not afraid, blessed is the name of the Lord. And um, she, we had a phone call. We were stopped at one point because Lyndon Johnson answered and she said, yes, Mr. President. So I figured that's who it was. So I left the room briefly because I felt she deserved some privacy with him and then went back in when she finished. And um, I didn't ask what he said and all that. She obviously called offer condolences. And we sat in there and um, just just listen to the television. That's really all we did. Um, and that was the it, only time she really registered. Uh, a lot yes, of she did. Outward she, emotion was. Well, she she wept a little bit then. You know, I could. But she didn't. It was very quiet, silent, and um, I think I think she felt far more than I did that that, um, that he was uh, might get shot because he he told her earlier. He said. Um, that I was stopped in the in the um, uh, airport to, to search the plane because I thought it was a, been told there was a bomb on board, and he 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 said often that he expected death to come at any time, any place, and um, and he had given her plastic flowers for something, and she told me about that um, not that night, but another time, and um, she said, "What did you give me plastic flowers for?" Uh, he said they had to remember me by. So it was that sort of thing. It was, um, I think she was, uh, of course, devastated, but she also um, half expected it too. I mean, you, the death would come. Right. You, you tell a story uh, sometime in the days after that when you were uh, around the house. Coretta asked you to drive. Uh, King's yep. father, Daddy King, down to see, I think it was the Atlanta Braves the practicing. Braves, yep. He was a great yep. baseball uh, fan. Tell, tell me about that for a minute. Well, she said nobody would be there, and the other children were gone, and Dexter was uh, the only one that, that she didn't want to leave him. And she asked me if I'd take him along and, and drive Daddy to the airport. See, I was in the house all day long, early morning, and I w I w she had to come out and tell the Secret Service uh, that you have to, it's okay to let her in. And, um, that, and so I was able to stay in. Um, and then we got to the, I tried to talk to Daddy King a little bit, but he was a delightful little man. I was very fond of him. But I tried to talk about the Braves because I followed the Braves a bit myself and uh, he wouldn't, he couldn't respond, you know, just muttered hello and he was just very, very depressed and down. And, and I dropped him off at the, at the Braves Stadium and I was headed to my house because I needed to get some fresh clothes. Um, oftentimes I stayed there at 1130 and one night I stayed all night. I needed to run by my home and I was going down Ponce de Lynn and um, uh, Dexter started crying. He was seven years old then and a, a police car stopped next to me and it was, um, there were two policemen in it and at that time I don't think there were any white, uh, black policemen who were in the cars, I don't know. Anyway, they happened to be white. And they leaned over and I saw them looking at us. I stopped for a red light and there I was with a little black child. That was an unusual sight in, at 68, you know. And uh, so I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> if I get stopped and I explain I had the King child with me, before Dr. King's even buried, I would be, I'd get into trouble. So I drove into Midtown. I've got a friend who lives uh, who lived in there, and uh, she wasn't home, but her mother was. And she hugged the child and gave him a glass of milk and some cookies. 
and we took him out in the backyard where there were a bunch of kittens, a cat that had kittens, and he started playing with the kittens, and he was all right. I took him home. Yeah. But um, Tell uh, me about the morning of the funeral when you came to the house and were there when Jackie Kennedy arrived. Yeah. Well, I had gotten up before dawn to go by the AP office <clears throat> to write a story on the, on um, you know what what I could about Jackie Kennedy arriving. Of course, we didn't know if she'd arrive. We would never have used it if, until she did arrive. But she wrote said, "Well, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy came to meet the widow and so forth." And you could sort of go along with a short story on it. And because I'd already been in the house, I knew what the house was like and who, how many. There was always a little circle of women, um, you know, mostly black women, and and um, and and mourning clothes, and it was um, so. We got, I did that and I said, I told them don't publish this uh, until I call and make sure she visits the house. And that was the understanding and then I drove to the King house and um, um, I got in, <clears throat> I got in okay with that. Uh, they knew me pretty well, but I, but I knew that they wouldn't let me stay unless I, unless I had um, uh, Coretta uh, had, had a vouch for me and I thought it was, not tasteful at all to have her <clears throat> have her say anything about and have to come out of the bedroom just to say it's okay to have Catherine. So I put on an apron in order to to um, cook breakfast for the King family. Now Coretta never came out of the bedroom, but she'd gotten up early too to meet her her parents from Alabama, Mr. and Mrs. Obadiah Scott, and um, they were very nice though, very quiet. They had very little to say, but. Uh, so I found a big apron and I got them rattled around the pots and pans and I, I scrambled some eggs and made some toast and bacon and coffee and milk and I fed all four of the children plus the old folks. And uh, by that time, of all people, uh, meanwhile, <clears throat> the youngest, Bernice, had, had a spilled orange juice on her skirt. So that wouldn't do either. It was a white dress. So I had to take, it up, take off a dress and wash the skirt. And uh, out of orange juice, and then iron it. That put me behind. I was really concerned. By that time, the doorbell rang, and so I rushed to the door of the dining room, where you could see the front door. And I, <clears throat> I had on the apron and a, and a towel over my arm. I hadn't had time to. <laughs> and, um, and so it, Jackie Kennedy walks in, and the only other white person in the in the living room at that time was uh, Ivan Allen, the male. And she spotted me, and she made a beeline to me, and she, she, to my amazement, she shook my hand. And the, the only explanation I have is, uh, to this day, I feel she thought I was the king's white maid, <laughs> which is the reason uh, that she, you know, was being extremely polite on that something. Sort of and uh, when she, when she went to the bedroom with Coretta for about five minutes, and then <clears throat> she came out, and they came out to, to leave. And when they left, I picked up one of the many phones in the King home and dialed the office. And I said, hello, mother, this is Catherine. And I just wanted to let you know that Jackie Kennedy was here. And this guy who answered, it had been there when I put it in and he didn't know about the arrangement. And he said, lady, you have the wrong number. <laughs> it just sent my heart into a fast beat, you know, because I know that they needed to get the story out. I said, oh, no. <clears throat> I said, this is Catherine, and he said, oh, is this Catherine? Uh, are you trying to tell me something? I said, yes. Anyway, he finally got the message of the story went out. When we come back, 
Johnson shares her most memorable moment of King's funeral as a reporter closest to the family. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to the Voices of King. I know you were uh, you were you were in and out of the church during yeah. the funeral, and and tell me tell me about what your most vivid memory of the funeral and the procession afterwards is. Inside the church, or the whole thing? You mean the whole thing? I think probably more outside and, and the yeah. procession. Um. Well. <clears throat> I climbed, when I came out of the church, we, we were spelling each other then. They were an AP people, and of course, they would only let one of us in at a time. So after about, a, you know, the service was very long. After a short time, half hour, 45 minutes, one would come out, and, and we had the whole procession to cover and so forth. And when I, I came out, um, I climbed on top of the King Hurst because it was there, and I could see everybody. And, um, and they. You know, nobody said a word. They were so mesmerized about watching people coming out. And uh, of course, all the famous people, even Nixon was there. And the one towering figure of all was Wilt Chamberlain. And he was, I don't know how tall he is, but he was way above everybody. You know? <laughs> and um, the thing that I think, there's several things that are the most vivid in my memory. And one of them is that I had, had gone to the Ebenezer Church in February and heard the famous uh, um, I'm a drum major for peace speech. And I hadn't wanted to go because of one of the rare weekends off. And I asked my, I called my boss. He said, we can't, our budget is blown. And because it was always blown with everything that was going on in the 60s. And um, so I, th I think he knew I would cover it because I, I felt very strongly about, about um, the movement. And, and I was afraid I would miss something important. So I went and I, I taped it, plus took notes because you, you get so scared something would happen to the machine or whatever. And um, when I got back to the uh, bill, um, to the um, journal building, he asked me where the AP was, and I typed it up, sent it to AMs and PMs, and and uh, on my own time and so forth. And um, which which I, I'm glad I did now. <clears throat> I always did, but I that day listening to as far as you could see down Auburn Avenue all the way to the city, there were loudspeakers, and you could hear I'm a drum major for peace playing. You know, and uh, I remember being. Uh, the uh, odd feeling to realize that after all the extra work and hours that I'd done with such energy and passion, that uh, what I'd done had made a difference. Because that whole, the thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people who were there, 150,000, uh, they wouldn't even be hearing that unless I'd gone to the church. Now, SELC and Ebenezer, they also tape 
all those and um, speeches, but they didn't have the ability to send it worldwide uh, the way AP did. And, it, and I, when I sent it, it went on the AY around the world, uh, both for AM's papers and PM's papers. And um, that was one vivid memory. <clears throat> it was just very personal. And um, you walked that whole I, I walked, route from I walked Ebenezer to, we, to, we to the AU Center. What, yeah, yeah. Describe that to me. What that procession that we've all seen pictures of with the mules and the mule-drawn wagon and all that. What was that like? What did it sound like? What did it look like? What do you remember from it? Well, I remember that it was. At first, when we got there, we'd been told to expect violence because cities all over the country were blowing up, and burning, and and. Um, <clears throat> But it was very quickly obvious that there would be no violence because there were so many little children all dressed up for Sunday best, and the men wearing jackets and so forth, and the women were dressed. Of course, there were many different types, but there were there were men in overalls and so forth. But it was quite obvious that the that the people of Atlanta, particularly mostly black, uh, there were quite a few whites too. But they were they were there to mourn King, and they and to honor him, and and there was. I never saw any violence. I, I know that they had problems about it. They were concerned about it, and a lot had been done. But the great crowds, uh, I never saw any of it, except um, they would sing, and that was helpful a lot. And King was um, lying on a, 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 well, it was a horse-drawn carriage, old Georgia mules that they had done to show his uh, feeling for the poor. and. Um, the, the he always led marches in the past, but here there were people in front of him and back of him and beside him. They were, you know, march. It was very, uh, very moving and very touching um, to, to be part of that. And then when we got to, uh, it was a, what Spellman. Um, it was the quadrangle at Morehouse. Yeah, Morehouse. That's right. That um. And um. For the Oval, I forget, but anyway, it was at Morehouse. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd been to more the spelling for when they first bought the body home. That's what they were. Anyway, um, that was that was interesting too. Um, there was a, a talk and whatnot, and then we all apparently got a ride to the cemetery. And um, but then I had to walk back. But the, but the, I I got pretty close to to the everybody at the cemetery because I had the, all so many you know, press passes on me and special ones for that. Um, the, it was so crowded, by the way, you're talking about, crowded, uh, police would say, you got to move outside of Ebenezer, and they would say, um, man, there's nowhere to go, and there really wasn't. So, man, you got to move, you know, because I uh, can't stand here, and so forth. Uh, no, I don't think anybody expected the 100,000, 150,000 people. And um, at the cemetery, uh, there was some several funny things, I think, uh, well, you told, you told me about, there was one thing that I thought was particularly touching about the uh, Haile Selassie, the uh, oh, yeah. emperor well, of what, Ethiopia yeah. land. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, uh, at, the, at the end of the ceremony, I, Coretta put a hand on the, before they lowered this head in the uh, coffin there, and so did Daddy King. Daddy King wept, and she did too at the funeral then. Um, and then it was all over. And people were leaving, but I was hanging around a little bit to, to watch. It was it was um, like watching a, a Fellini movie. Were people were trampling all over everything to get closer when, when the service ended to look and see what they could see and so forth. Picking up flowers, and uh, there was a woman sitting in the flower bed with a, a typewriter. 
I didn't recognize her where she was from, <clears throat> but um, uh, Haley Selassie was a very diminutive little figure and with a long gray cloak. And, uh, but he's very regal looking, you know, very. And he walked over and pick, he picked up a, a rose from some of the flowers and then walked over and, and, let, and put it, threw it at the, uh, on the king. And I thought it was very touching because very obviously a very private thing he did. It wasn't part of the ceremony and so forth. But I have walked back to the journal building, um, and I think it's about four miles. Four and, and I was already, you know, I'd walked all the way. And I'd worked hard all week with very little sleep, and, and I had to stop. In those days, we had, and there were no laptops and no cell phones. And I begged somebody, he had his, lock, his door locked, a business guy, and I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm oppressed, and I've got a phone in, and, and he, he unlocked it and let me in. And, um, I made a quick call. We had to check in, you know, all the time with uh, the office. And uh, when I got back, I went into that newsroom. For, at that time, it, it, the um, you could hear the machines going, the tap tapping, and and uh, cigarette smokes and shouting and whatnot. So I just went to uh, around the corner in the journal building. There was kind of a sitting room for the for the women, and I sat there. And um, that's when I really felt. Um, that he's, he was really gone. You know, news people keep emotions to themselves. They have to keep it in check or they couldn't cover it and, and be clear-headed about it. But then I didn't have to anymore. And I couldn't even get up for several hours. I just sat there. I was unable to get up. I was just uh, just sort of wiped out, you know, before I could go home. So it affected you too, not just physically, but emotionally? Well, I, I, just, I felt, what I felt was um, that with all I've been covering him since 59, and um, off and on with demonstrations and so forth, and uh, out of town, the Selma March, whatnot. And it, it really struck me then that, um, that King would not march no more and never again would we hear the sound of his voice, which was, you know, very, it was a, a great order. And I was really, um, that's when it hit me, sort of. You know, you, you have to, sort of. I've written everything I needed to write at that point, and the five days were over. I know while you're covering, you have to be separated and uh, emotionally distant to an extent, to, so you can cover it objectively. But while you were covering it, I mean, what was the first thought that raced through your mind? I mean, were you when you heard it on the radio on that day? Were you was it the first I, thing work feel, or emotion? No. Well, uh, how, what did I feel when I first heard it? And I was stunned, all right. I really felt, and in fact, my date and I, he and I were both almost totally silent. He didn't even ask me, do you want to go to the King House? He turned around and drove, because he knew I didn't want to go. And we were silent, and we just sort of lost in the, the emotion of feeling, um, uh, well, because I'd only heard that he had been shot first, but you know, then it came, late, came late on that he was gone. And uh, <clears throat> there's something interesting that we're not, talking about me at this point. Um, Charlie Kelly says that that um, he was up in he was up in Memphis, but he wasn't there when he was shot. But he was at the hospital, and they were crowded with news people wanting to see, uh, you know, what ha what was happening, how he was doing. And Andy Young came out with tears going down his face, and he couldn't talk. And he did like this to, uh, to show that you know it was gone. And um, so he said we knew then that he had died. That's how they knew it. The, Hundreds, a couple of hundred press people, I gather. Um, but 
I was a little bit like Coretta. I, I mean, it was my mother, for example, she used to see me in demonstrations, and particularly after the script told that morning, we were in the bedroom and, I mean, in the den and watching. I always had breakfast before the TV to see what the news was. And um, <clears throat> you could see I was the only white face in the crowd with my notebook, you know, asking King all the usual strike questions. And she said, honey, be careful. I'm afraid someday somebody's going to kill that, that man. And, you know, he, that was years earlier. And um, you know, in a case like that, you, you do worry, think, you know. But at the same time, you are creamed with it. But, but, but as a reporter, you're so trained to observe and cover what you're covering. You do feel something. I mean, you feel the, you get a sense of poignancy about what's going on. and and you can write about it, but you can't let your emotions go, you can't. I've seen young reporters do that, and they couldn't, they weren't any good and afterwards, you know, they didn't get the, the story covered. Um, while I wasn't terribly surprised, it was a great, it was a shock still, and I knew that it changed everything on the movement, which it did. It was never, as far as I'm concerned, the civil rights movement that, that gave us, uh, gave the blacks a uh, voting rights and ended segregation. It ended with King's death, more or less. I mean, that particular, those aspects of it. Um, Abernathy was a, a, a aide of King's and he was a, a, a really a nice guy. He was great on the in the black church, but he didn't know how to really handle the press and they lost interest and didn't bother and they couldn't, he couldn't get anything else done. And that's my feeling that 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 particular movement really did what it needed to do, but it, it ended then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Jim, you understand when you say you can't, um, you feel very. Did you have to? You have to go along and cover. It? Well, I mean. But you do feel. You, you know. Well, you you feel. I mean, you know, it. You always, if you're covering it, you always feel a certain distance because you're focusing on the job you have to yes, do. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, this is not a momentous thing, but I remember when I was there, when, when the Braves won the World Series uh, in the sixth game, I happened to, I was in the press box that night. That year, I was covering the World yeah. Series for some reason. And, I remember, and I'm a big baseball fan. I'd seen yeah. the Braves so yeah. many times over the years. And when they won that game, I, I, I had to file something on Deadline, a color story about yeah. the scene there. But I allowed, I looked at the watch and I said, okay, I'm going to allow myself 60 seconds to sync this up. Just to, to enjoy it, and I stood there and I watched the crowd roaring, and I looked around that stadium I've been in so many times, and tears came to my eyes. Yeah, sure. And then, after about a minute, I took a deep breath yeah. and said, "Okay, back to work." <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And that's what you do. Yeah, you do it. You yeah. know, whether well, it's you a happy a thing that's or right. a sad thing, yeah. you you have to. That when I went back to the restroom, I didn't cry because I rarely ever cry, yeah. but I just felt devastated. It hit me really hard, you know. That, and, and it was shocking to hear that we wouldn't hear his voice again or anything like that. Yeah. In the next episode of The Voices of King, we will hear from Martin Luther King III, Dr. King's second oldest child. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals Sandra Brown, Senior Managing Editor Mark Wallagor, and our Editor-in-Chief Kevin Raleigh. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King.
Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.